engineer to entrepreneur. Created to talk about the journey from writing code to running multi-million dollar SaaS businesses. Engineer to entrepreneur. Cloud concepts that break the way people think today. Cloud concepts for me, the idea of, of a cloud concept is something that works in the cloud, but is a product. I had a similar question actually on the Pocona. I was on a panel at Pocona Live and they talked about what cloud database technologies are available and what was coming out. And I had a very important question from that, which I sort of interrupted the sales guy, poor guy, um, who had no idea about databases and what I was talking about and what everyone else was talking about. But I sort of wanted to know whether people think that cloud solutions are solutions that you build in the cloud or that they are readily available in the cloud as a product ready to go. Because for me, the whole point of something being in the cloud is that you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, no, I agree. For me, it's about, it's both elements. How do you use the cloud to build your own tools? And how do you use tools in the cloud ready-made? Like yesterday, for example, um, did you see the Snowflake IPO? No. So Snowflake are basically a, they call themselves like a data platform in the cloud. Um, and it was the, apparently the biggest, uh, biggest tech IPO launch ever in history. Wow. Warren Buffett went in, I think 145 million pound investment he put in. His first ever investment in a tech company that's like IPO, like at IPO stage rather than waiting a couple of years. Um, but that's like, that is a tech platform in the cloud. So for you, is, is a cloud concept something that a SaaS business puts in the cloud and is available and infinitely scalable to you as a customer? Or is that something that is available to anyone as a product that engineers can go and use? Uh, I go to the extreme of the kind of serverless world where in two, three, four, five years time, people won't worry, as you're writing code, people won't worry about where your code is running in terms of what hardware they'll care about location for privacy reasons but in terms of hardware no one will care um so i think the biggest the biggest shift from a concept of, of being in the cloud is as a product or a service you're uh, adding value so you add value by doing logic like you've got a layer on top of um on top of that hardware where you're in charge of it as a business your value is what does that kind of service provide um so the job of a business then becomes how do i write my own software on top of that um and let everything else be worried about it does that not get confusing i suppose for software engineers where there is going to be a level of configuration management required to make your application run and i know we keep talking about things like docker and kubernetes and everything else um in the lovely serverless world where you don't have to manage anything really so i mean more like cloud run an app engine where you don't have to care about what compute instance your code is going on but let's say you're on a i don't know two cpu two gig of ram box versus like an eight and eight the way that your application is going to run depending on how stateless and heavy it is completely depends on the configuration under the hood and then you go to like the finer details of if you're running something like php fpm you've got to work out your max children and um, how many processes you're running at what point does it become serverless do you envisage the world going forward with here's my code do what you like with it or is it a case of here's my docker container here's the limitations that i have it needs to run on this 
how serverless do people believe is serverless? I think we'll get to the point of um, things like cloud functions and Lambda and stuff like that, where you're writing a function. If you think about you know writing a function in code, like just like a PHP application for a second, you write a function to do a job. Well, if I've got my IDE and my IDE is hooked up to AWS or, or Google Cloud or Azure or whoever, um, can I just write that function in my IDE? I click save and that is deployed and that function then can be called via a URL. And I've, because I've, I've abstracted it so far away from the hardware, your function is written kind of with those limitations in mind. Obviously you've got logging and stuff so you can see if there are bottlenecks in the same way if you had a problem, I can't think of one, but if you had a problem with your code running on a eight gig, eight CPU server, you'd go and diagnose, you know, is it, is there a memory leak? Is there, is it using too many connections? Is there a timeout somewhere? All that kind of stuff. Um, so you've abstract, in my head, you abstract it so far away that you're literally just writing code in an IDE, hit save, boom, there's now an endpoint. Because if we go, if you think about it from a API world, if we're going to go more API driven and everything that, that is done, everything just has a, has an endpoint. You write a function, that function has an endpoint. Someone consumes that function and that endpoint gets on with their day. If we go back to the database layer just a second, and we take the same concepts as you can for serverless, um, and it's something that I spoke to Peter Zavix about, which was, can we take the idea of writing like code on that level for serverless stuff and apply it to the bottlenecks that we will see in the serverless world, such as databases, um, caching servers, you know, queue servers, all the, all the rest of them? Yes, there are products available. Some of them are quite limited. Some of them, I mean, there aren't all of the technologies available that people are using today. Um, I know Google have only recently come out with um, memcached with memory store and that's extremely expensive. So it doesn't really work for most businesses. But for those kind of things, let's say you're com- you you make that thing really fast by configuring it to hell, especially on a database side. Do you not see how that could um, grow? So you could just say, OK, here's my table schema. It should be up to the serverless database to decide what indexes it needs to create and dynamically create them based on the queries that come through rather than me having to think about that from an application perspective. Yeah, 100%. That, that, is, where, that is where I think it will get to. And you're outsourcing the management of that to a cloud provider, as in they're writing the tools and the automation that would go and dynamically create indexes and that kind of stuff. That would be great though, wouldn't it? Like you put your data out, and you don't have to worry about indexes. You don't have to worry about, you know, primary keys, um, you know, a little bit maybe, but nowhere near as much. You wouldn't have to consistently, especially as your data set changes, you wouldn't have to go in and keep working out what, what the best thing to do is for your database. It, the idea is that it would, just be very, it would be very elastic. It would do it for you. Yeah, 100%. And if you think about all the tech that's coming out, things like BigQuery, things like Spanner, where... You want to, if you're a developer, if you're an engineer and you want to, you've got a piece of data that you want to save or a, a schema that you want to create and types of data that you've got, whether it's SQL, NoSQL, that kind of stuff. You almost want like a, you always want the cloud platform to pick the right data uh, storage engine for the type of data that it is and the type of query. So you could start out in Cloud SQL. And then over time, you get a little pop-up that says your data is better suited in Cloud Spanner or BigQuery or Data Store. And under the hood, it's just dynamically 
moving stuff around. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it currently does that with your um, compute instance sizes and GCP, doesn't it? So it's just yeah, taking exactly. that one step further. Yeah. And I think that's what that's what excites me. Back to the previous um, episode where we were talking about, you know, what we did as teenagers and what excited us then. I think if you're... Still talking about code, yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll get on to that later. The, um, the exciting bit is you can build an entire business off the back of just writing functions. You can write business logic. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of it like a super simple business idea. You know, we were talking about um, productivity hacks for engineers last time yeah. and how there's all these services. Well, can you can you just build a service on top of a serverless world? Chuck in and a it solves, function. Yeah, exactly. And it solves, it solves someone's problem. It's a bit like... Um, a bit like libraries. If you think about open source libraries, they're all available on GitHub. You download them. Um, you use them in your projects. Well, what if I just host it myself? And it doesn't work for all libraries, obviously, but where it would make sense, there's just an API endpoint. If you wanted to, I don't know, um, I can't think of one. Literally, my mind's gone blank. I can think of one. Well, um, let's take, for example, ImprovMX. We used that as an example last time. Um, there is a, there is an open source version of it. I say version. It's not version. There is an open source project that does exactly the same thing, but it requires a server and some knowledge of configuration and setup. But you could do the very same thing. You could take that open source project. You could put it in a serverless world. I don't think there's any email serverless things at the moment, but you could put it in. You could put it in there, and you could provide the endpoints. You could provide a pretty UI, and off your trot. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's like a perfect example in my head of the business logic layer sitting on top that doesn't care about the infrastructure. You're providing a service. That service is to redirect mail and, you know, have a quick setup of, of an email inbox so that you don't have to go and sign up for a service from Gmail or whoever. But that's exactly the point I think I'm I'm making there is take your business logic layer, slap it into some serverless stuff and you're away. I'm trying to see what it's called now. Can't find it. Oh, well. But yeah, I mean, there's loads of examples of, of those kind of things available. It's just a case of coming up with the right idea, marketing it properly and offering it to people in a really simple format. I think that's the that's the challenge, though. It, it all sounds really easy, especially the way that we say it. It sounds really easy to take something, take an idea, um, put it on a server and deliver it to people, market it. But actually, as we found, coming up with an idea and building something is, I mean, for us, is very easy. But actually trying to market that to the right audience is extremely difficult because you're you're starting from the idea rather than the audience so you're having to find who the audience is you can start from any point but it makes it harder to to go around the other points unless you're an absolute expert in one of them yeah and i read a i read a quote from someone the other day um the biggest problem people have with marketing is that they come up with the idea and then go and find the audience rather than find the audience or the the people that have the problem and solve their problem and I suppose that becomes even more dangerous in a cloud world because, or does it become, maybe it's a quicker way to MVP actually, is I don't have to spend time spinning up servers and doing all that kind of stuff. I can literally just write some code, provide a function with an endpoint, boom, does it work? Does it not work? Building it from there. Have I solved someone's problem? And being an engineer, you're able to write code. The thing about the population and the, the amount of businesses there on the world probably only, and people in the world, maybe, I don't know, 0.2% of people can write code. But there's a hell of a lot of businesses out there. There's a, lot of hell, a hell of a lot of people 
working for businesses who can't write code? I think that's going to change, though. With the the way that education is moving and the way that technology is moving as well, I think we'll find ourselves in about 10 years where everyone's writing code and it will be just a thing that goes into the syllabus. It'll be a thing that people are generally interested in because they've seen that, you know, at the time there were high wages for it, there was high demand. But as that demand gets filled and people start going through the education system of, you know, getting their computer science degrees, uh, going and learning, building a portfolio of pieces of code that they've written, classes that they've written, languages that they've learnt, they're going to find themselves in a position that by the time that they finish that, actually the demand for engineers has gone because there's too many of them. So what happens after that point? Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? What, what, is it just such a commodity in the same way that when they first, you know, when the first desktop computer came out, which meant that by the time we were kids, we were able to use it and we were able to write code. That was That's what we've grown up with. Whereas cloud-wise, obviously internet speeds get faster, all that kind of stuff. Storage is cheaper. The commodity is now just, where do I host it? Where's the cheapest place to host it? Where can I execute these lines of code? That's a good point, actually. So people who, I mean, people, I guess, had to be qualified to go and use these big machines and these computers at the time, you know, with IBM when they came out with these massive machines for corporations. When Now that we're in the position where those machines are in everyone's hand and everyone's houses and everyone's workplaces, what's the next level deep into that? Writing code is one because you're not just using the machine, you're you're programming it. But then from there, and as we, we go into a cloud world where you don't have to have the hardware anymore, is it, you know, where's the where's the next leap is it data is it ai is it i mean it could be anything there's lots going on at the moment but it's taking one or many of those things and moving on to the next the next part i mean ibm were a really big leader back then in terms of hardware but now in terms of technology and writing code i mean your leaders are what like google amazon you know even tesla in some cases um i mean there's lots of them doing different things and achieving different things which one is going to be the one that we should be focusing on right now or the, or the new people thinking about writing code by the time that they finish writing code and as you say it's a commodity what should they be focusing on to get to the career that they need to be so that by the time they get there it's the next best thing i think there's a massive wave about to come over the no code movement so there's all these tools that have come up where i can drag and drop i can you know i can create an iphone app without need to code i can move data around i can take you know data in from an excel spreadsheet Do you i not can think drag and drop that's going the other way though no i think it's the from what i've what i've been looking at and seeing over the last couple of months all these agencies that spun up to create your website if you think about creating a website it's a really good idea sorry a really good um case in point of this you know and you've been there you work in agencies where you build websites for people. You've got things like Wix and GoDaddy. Yeah, they're a little bit crap at the moment, and they're not they're not as good as you could get from um, going and writing pure HTML, CSS. But they're also serving the needs of people. Now, you and I are quite fussy, and you would look at an awful website and cringe, and out of principle, not buy anything from that website because it looked so awful. But you're you're the one person out of twenty billion that would do that. So if the website serves a purpose, then it doesn't matter what it looks like. I think that's the point, though. That That's how they can sell those things at such low cost because the margins on them are really small, but you can sell them in the in the million. They're, they're the kind of things that you're, you know, your Uncle Bob around the corner cutting people's hair at the weekend. 
it, it works for him because he doesn't have to put much money into it. He doesn't have to pay a hundred grand to an agency to get a website out. You know, he's not one of those big things that require everything to be perfect. It's not a brand level thing. It serves a purpose. And that purpose is that you want to have your essentially your digital business card available online. So when people Google you, you come up, you know, you're there, your digital presence is available. And for most, regardless of how crap the website looks, that's enough for them, which is why that they're, they're quite happy paying how much it is a pound a month or, you know, Squarespace, like £12 a month, $8 a month, whatever it might be. And they, they're, they're happy with that. But the, I mean, the agency one is a good one. And, and the no code thing is quite interesting because how far does it go in terms of the no code side before you start writing code? Is there that much, is it that detailed on a feature level for the no code places and the no code um, companies where they can create all of these features available to you to go and update everything? Like Webflow is, is one of them um, and, and the adverts are all right. But when you think about it, the people writing the features and the ability to write no code are probably writing the worst code in the world to get there because you're having to add all of these options in and make everything flexible. And there's going to be a case where you have to limit it to a point. You can't put every option in there. Where does that where does that line sit? And it might be that, as you say, 99% of people or 99% of the market who require a website within that bracket of um of how much they're willing to pay for it it works you know it really works for them i guess it'd be interesting to see where where that sits like what the maths would be say you have i don't know a million people requiring a 10 pound a month website versus a thousand companies requiring a five hundred thousand pound website built by an agency you know which part of the market is larger it's going to be the one with with the consumers essentially asking for websites because they won't care you sell them in bulk yeah, and they've got a price point, and that ten dollars a month, ten pound a month, is their price point, and they don't really care as long as it looks okay and it, it's got the functionality. If you take your hairdresser as a as a good example, their digital transformation stops at can I take bookings online? Like, there's not much more from a digital point of view. You're doing a haircut in a hairdresser's. You're doing to go for a haircut. It's still a human there. You can't automate all that away. So the digital transformation for that is online booking. So you go to an online booking platform who gives you a web front end, you brand it, boom, you're done. Is that no code? Is that not no code? I mean, but what it's done is it's gotten rid of an agency that specialized in building websites and booking engines for hairdressers. And there's probably in the UK, I don't know, 60,000 hairdressers. If you had the market then and you charge a grand for a website, but somebody else comes along and you can now create and create it for ten dollars a month, ten pound a month. You're going to do that, aren't you? Mm. I mean, it's a bit like um, Just Eat when they came out. Um, they basically replaced a lot of the the websites and Hungry House as well. That I think they had custom websites built for um, for venues or for takeaways where they could basically go online, upload their menu, and they would have an online booking system for people to go and um, make bookings and um, get takeaway, basically. And that was quite genius because they they built it once and they sold it a million times over to every takeaway around the world. And if, if you worked out that if they even if they charged something tiny like ten or twenty p an order, you know that's a multi million pound a month business alone on bookings in the Just UK. Just from, from the amount amount of takeaway you eat, yeah. <laughs> but back to your original question though, it's what is the, what is the cloud like? That is is that it? Is the cloud just abstracting away business problems? The business problem would be for a takeaway, how do I take online orders and get them delivered? You think about like Uber is an example of that. 
Mm. You've got drivers and you've got people that need a, need, a, need a ride. So Uber have made their money by putting essentially business logic in between those two people, demand, supply. Well, I think that, that works really well because, um, because people are getting really lazy now, right? So people are expecting a lot more. So the thing about Uber is that you can actually track your driver and literally see all of them there. You want to have that information. I was, where was I the other day getting a taxi somewhere? Um, oh no, I was, I was ordering a taxi for my wife who was out and um, it was one of those things where you had to ring up and ask whether they had any, any availability. They didn't, but it made me think, this is why Uber is so good and why people have caught onto it because you don't have to talk to anyone. You open an app, you see what's around, available around you and you can make your own assumptions. You don't have to do any of that awkward stuff of ringing up someone, asking a question. If you say no, then you're a bit like, uh, okay, well, I don't want to use you then. So see you later. And imagine having to do that after five pints or 10 pints. <laughs> having a coherent conversation, whereas you can spend 10 minutes sitting on a wall outside a pub, typing the location you want to go to as slow or as fast as you need to. Yeah, I know what I'd, I'd rather be doing. It's all this stuff that just solving people's problems. Yeah, is that a problem though? Was that was that ever a problem? It wasn't really a problem. It was more of a <laughs> it was more of a case of um, making it easier for people, isn't it? Like this is what I mean by when I say people are getting lazy. It's not that they're actually lazy. It's just that it's more convenient. It's like convenience food, right? People are more likely to go and buy something convenient than they are to um, you know go and have a nice meal or spend an hour cooking dinner. They'd much rather probably shove something in the microwave for five minutes. If they've, if they've got a busy life compared to saving over a, a stove for an hour or two hours, cooking a lovely meal, you know, what are you going to do if you had loads of work to do? Well, yeah, exactly. Or you just deliver it. Exactly. That's what I was waiting for. All, <laughs> I'd do neither and I'd pick up, the, I'd pick up the Just Eat app. But that's where, exactly that point, it's just problem solving, isn't it? Is that all business is? Is that the, is that the answer? Is that the existential answer to business? Solve someone's problems and get paid for it? The thing is, you say problem solving at this point. I don't think any, any of those examples are really problem solving. They are sort of dream making. What are you dreaming of when you're using the delivery app then? Well, that's what I mean, is that your dream when you're talking to someone over the phone who's not quite really understanding you in terms of what, what you want for an order, you know, because you might be really drunk. You don't really want to deal with that. I wouldn't say there's a problem. It's just more of a, I would rather not speak it's to that It's a barrier person. to entry. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. How it's can a barrier make... to entry of this ordering this food and how do I get rid of it? How can you make the journey easier? I think is probably the better way of putting it. It's all about customer experience and user experience. People forget that. So, which is why I get annoyed by crap websites and like how they don't work on mobile when generally 80% of your users come from mobile. Those are the kind of things that for me and for other people as well, um, is what's really important, that user journey. And I've worked, I've worked at agencies where we have spent literally weeks just on the, the customer journey alone, not designing, not building, not coding, just working out what the journey is, because that's the most important part. You have to start from the journey before you build anything. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a position where you've built it and you go, oh, actually, it's a bit clunky. You know, you're, you're doing the 10 extra steps to get to the same thing when you could have removed them. And that, I think is overlooked by a lot of companies and a lot of people. Um, whereas people like Uber and people like um, Just Eat get it right because they've been through the journey. They've spent that time on the journey. And if the journey is is that easy, it doesn't require any explanation. It requires the least possible steps to get to your end result. Then you're a hundred times more likely to go through with it. Yeah, and that's the problem, isn't it? No one ever complains about a good UI. So from a value point of view, 
If you're the CTO or the chief product officer of a tech business and you're having to justify spending 55 billion hours on user experience to your CEO, if you get it right, he's never going to know why you can't justify those hours. If you spend 10 hours on it and you built a crap user journey and he gets a ton of complaints or she gets a ton of complaints about the fact that your website or your app is awful to use, then you've got a problem. And then you can go and say, right, well, the justification is that people are complaining about it. Mm. That's difficult, that, isn't it? But I agree But I agree with you. you the, the best user journeys, you don't even notice because they are so slick and beautiful and they just work. Well, this goes back to the saying of putting the right inputs and you get the right outputs of a business. You know, you need to make sure that you get everything right from a customer's perspective and it sort of ties into site reliability engineering as well which is what do you care about most of the time you care about what the customer thinks and what they experience you don't care about what happens inside that black box you care about what goes in and what comes out because that's what the customer sees if the customer has a good experience then generally you will probably see your revenue go up and you'll see more users using it if you're doing advertising right and you're you're getting the right people there then the rest of it will come naturally but there's no point complaining about there's no point putting something bad out to then justify later because that's just a disaster waiting for happen to happen from a business perspective. You don't want to create that sour reputation in the beginning and then go on your hands and knees to the CEO and say, please gonna have this budget to go and sort this out. Because by that time the damage is already done. Yeah. And I think if you look at I agree, the your SRE point is an interesting one. If you make everything black box um a ball and you're running an app or even a website app. If you think about, you know, if you've got a trading app and all you're doing is browsing stock history and executing trades, all you've got hosted from a cloud point of view is a lot of functions and those functions are called by the app. And that app could be a mobile app, could be a web app, um, but you've just exposed a lot of functions to the internet and using Ajax or whatever, you can you can run an app just using that. It was interesting yesterday when they announced, was it yesterday, some point in this week when they announced the iOS 14 stuff. <laughs> was that the um, one where they released it and none of the developers were ready for it? Yeah. They've they've got this new feature where if you want to download an app, you can use, I can't remember what they call it now, but you can basically use some functionality from that app without downloading it. So for example, if you, if you were a restaurant takeaway app and you didn't want to wait for the whole app to download, you could literally order a meal from within the, from within this like half- Half-baked copy of the app. And I was thinking, actually, that is a genius idea because how many apps do you have on your phone where you never touch them? Well, that's more a case of like how... We were talking about this the other day, weren't we? Which is um, how much of your code do you use or do you write in order to get the end thing? It's, I don't know whether this is the opposite of what you're talking about, but it, it ties in quite nicely, which is take a simple web application. You're running... Um, let's say you're running CentOS for an OS, you're running PHP FPM, you're running Apache, and you're running your PHP script. And you, you're only worrying about the code that you've written in your PHP script. But in order to make that thing work, how much of that code, how many, li- how many thousands of lines of code is actually being executed to make that thing work? Probably a lot more than your, say, 200 line PHP file. There's all the code in CentOS, there's all the code in Apache, there's all the code in PHP FBM, but then casing back to your point, how much of that? So let's say CentOS is what four gig of an operating system. How much of that are you not using? 
Yeah, exactly. And how much of it are you ever going to use? I think your point, no, your point is supporting my argument, I think, which is the least amount of effort to get the desired outcome. Yeah. Uh, Well, take Alpine, for example, as an operating system. That's what, 60 meg? Not even that. Goes to show how much is actually required from something like an operating system, how much code isn't being used. So going back to your app point, there's probably a ton of stuff. I mean, I could probably take all of my apps on my phone, tell you exactly how much gig is being used, how much of those are just sitting there dead, not being used at all. You probably do it from a static analysis point of view, which is, or even further, I mean, I know PHP unit does this and others, where it can actually follow the code line by line to work out where it's being executed. How do you then bin off the rest of it? I also think we're going to get to a point where internet speed's going to get better, 5G's going to come along, 6G, 7G, whatever. There won't be, you won't be installing apps anymore. Everything will just be a web app, apart from things like, I can't even think of things that you would use offline. I suppose the, it will come when, um, when, when you're never offline. So obviously on planes, there's now Wi-Fi, and in two or three years' time, there will be free Wi-Fi. It's obviously paid for now because they're having to recoup their costs. Um, on the tube, on the underground subway, whatever. Again, when you're constantly connected, how much of the how much of the app do you need to install to get the features out of it? Because if you think about most apps, apart from like gaming apps, most apps need an internet connection. They're useless otherwise. So can they just be web apps? Even games nowadays are downloaded from the internet to your hard drive. There's very little use of having local storage other than a small amount of memory. I, I guess, I mean, for example, I recently upgraded my internet to um, like a, a different BT package and that was 900 download and 110 upload. It's not quite a gigabit up and down, but, you know, fibre to the door, that kind of stuff is available to us. And those kind of speeds, if you you know, if you get it right, not just there, but in your house as well, those kind of speeds allow you to do quite a lot. Like we've all, all learned how Zoom calls are because of COVID, right? Everyone's doing Zoom calls. Everyone's doing Google Meets, whatever they might be. Um, everyone's doing something with their internet now. They're, we're we're testing the limits of the infrastructure that we have had all along. And it's absolutely fine. We're probably barely scratching the surface. So bring that into what you're just talking about, where everything's online. I mean, like Google Cloud are offering like IDEs. I think Amazon is as well. IDEs that you can use in the cloud. So there is no local setup anymore you could open a chromebook and get to work from a developer's perspective yeah and you, that then goes back to the point earlier of i'm writing my code in an ide hit save boom it's now in prod or it's in sandbox or whatever we could have done a full circle there because we've started off all of our careers writing like downloading um a file from sftp or no from ftp editing it in notepad or in windows xp saving it and it immediately uploading to SFTP server. We've gone away from that to lo- developing locally and now we're into the cloud and now we're back to making live changes with CI CD pipelines. Turns out we were doing that from the beginning, <laughs> but, but now it's just a little bit more mature. But it's that whole kind of mainframe slash client approach, isn't it? Where I used to, in the olden exactly to that point, olden days, you had a massive, great, big, giant mainframe, a little computer on someone's desk that was just executing commands on there. And now, and then we put big, powerful computers in people's homes to like do stuff because the internet wasn't great. And now we've gone back to the mainframe approach of the cloud. There we go. There's the answer to the question at the start. The cloud is just the mainframe. And as you say, we're just executing stuff 
from our phones, from our laptops, from a browser, doesn't matter what you're doing, and you're executing these little packets. If you think of everything as a HTTP request um, with a bit of stateless or statefulness thrown in, all you're basically doing is making a request, get some data back, display it on whatever device you're on, whether it's a phone, laptop, tablet, and then you go again and you make another request, another request, and another request. That is nuts. Yeah. I've only just realized that. <laughs> like we're, all the stuff that we complained about before, we're actually just crawling back to where we were. Like if, if you were to, if <laughs> I remember starting an agency and people were uploading things directly to SFTP servers in production. At the time, I was like, oh, what are you doing? Whereas now I'd be like, yeah, nice uh, CID CD pipeline there. Got a, a good CD pipeline, continuous deployment. As soon as you click with save, hu- it goes into production. With the, the CI CD pipeline before it was a human. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was two hands and a keyboard and a mouse. <laughs> oh, wow. No, it's interesting that. Yeah, that is quite interesting. So if you're thinking of, if you're, if you're thinking of starting a business and you need, basically... If you started a business five years ago, a tech business or a business that used technology in some form or the other versus you starting the exact same thing today, the whole thing looks completely different. Like completely, as you say, processes are different. The tech that's available on top of it, the stuff you're doing. So you're pulling about like CentOS to Alpine, it's getting smaller and smaller. If I want to write a Google Cloud function, I don't even care what, I don't care what the OS is. As long as the library that I want is there. Exactly. You just write some lines of code and you're away. And that, I think, is the cloud concept that's going to completely overhaul everything. It's going to change the world. But it's like the industrial revolution. Like, this is the digital one hasn't even started. The digital revolution is like in its infancy. I think a lot of companies are trying to use it to the best of their abilities, but we are not using its full potential. I mean, to be fair, there's been loads of films out showing its full potential. Person of interest is a good one, showing the, the potential of technology and how we could use it today, but we don't. I'm not saying we go that far, but... Back but, to the future. Yeah. It, so I haven't got a flying car. It's all possible. Just we decide not to. It sounds too crazy. Or there's generally, because there's laws in the way, uh, our, our, um, our laws are generally so outdated that technology fails to keep up with them. Well, well no, that's a lie. The laws fail to keep up with our, our technology. The laws fail yeah. to keep up with our technology. Yeah, like driverless cars. Yeah. Or even electric scooters. Yeah, I'm a prime example. Like, what was it that they opened all of those bike lanes or COVID-19 bike lanes? They've got them all around where I live. They've got them all around the UK, all, all the way from sort of Brighton in, and Liverpool. They've put these stupid rubber things up everywhere to help encourage people to cycle more. And surprisingly, no one is cycling. Very few people are actually cycling. And I think one of the local councils I know of spent £600,000 on these cycle lanes and three months in, they've decided to scrap them because no one's using them. What a great spend of money that was. Why are, they, why are people not using them? Because it's, they're not commuting? Or? No, I think it's, it's too much of a change to their own lifestyle. It's quite different to say to someone, oh, you're, you can now cycle to work. It's like, great, but I don't want to. Or I don't have a bike. Or, you know, I would prefer to drive because I've got a car for the next two years that I'm paying on lease. Or it's not... It doesn't quite work, which is why I hate the idea that people think that you can just change something and it, and it will go. You need to remember that we live in a real world and, and most humans really struggle to adapt to change. So you can't just go bang, there you go, the world's going to change today. No, it's not. Come on. You need a little migration path or a roadmap to allow people to adjust. And for some reason, they thought that adding in cycle lanes 
tomorrow, then the whole world is going to be really economic. No one's going to drive the car anymore. And in fact, it just made things worse. And if anything, it made the CO2 emissions worse because people were sitting in traffic for half an hour. Because <laughs> there's less road to use. Yeah. Well, it's such a hand in he- head in hand moment. You think you just start with like one lane, see if it works, see if people use it. Well, they've already got... So Brighton um, in, in East Sussex, they put a cycle lane out next to a cycle lane that they had on the seafront. So they had two cycle lanes, even though the cycle lane that was already there was not being widely used. So instead, in central Brighton, the the two lanes that they had on the seafront turned into one. And you can imagine, at sort of lunchtime, just absolutely chock-a-blocker. Carnage? Carnage. People riding into each other? It wasn't even that, it was just... Upturned bikes? <laughs> broken limbs? There was There were no cyclists. It was just cars everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's one of those moments you just want to slap the whomever it was that decided on that in the face. Yeah, well, as you say, people don't like change. And I think there's only this is like the like scratching the surface of change in the digital world. And everything we've just spoken about is only just come around the corner. Yeah, I mean, a prime example of it is um, Tesla's fully self-drive package, the lovely $6,800 add-on software update. Um where about 80 or 90% 90 of it cannot be used in the UK due to laws. Or sorry, not even in the UK, in the EU. It cannot be used. It has to be turned off by law. So you spent £6,800 on something, and most of it's turned off because the countries in the EU won't allow you to to do it because it's deemed as too dangerous or not being tested enough or, or whatever. It just goes to show that technology is not... Although technology is there, we can't make the best use of it right now. Maybe that kind of technology is just a little bit too fast. Why though? There's like, well, because they're it's not mature in terms of like the ethics of it. Do you do you run a small child over in the road, or do you potentially kill the passengers in the car? Like, how do you how do you decide that as a computer? It's an if statement. It's like there's a one or a zero. At least with a um, with a human driver, you can kind of weigh the risk up, and you know morally and you know like all that kind of stuff in a split second you could work it out whereas computers haven't got there yet and that's a that's a very kind of explicit example of driverless cars and the damage they could cause there was a whole um article on this wasn't there which was do you run over an old lady or do you run over a baby which one has more life in them which one's worth more and being able to program that that worth i mean i'd like to think that we're in the position where you won't have to program that at all and they both die, no, and <laughs> and and you can stop within the distance that you know you can see to be clear, and um, you don't have to make that decision. There shouldn't be a case where we where we're coding that in somewhere. Otherwise, I, I think we've made a mistake. Do you think the one thing I thought about with driverless cars is if they were if they were all driverless and they were all able to communicate with each other over like some kind of protocol, like some kind of like safety mesh type. <laughs> infrastructure it's not console they, yeah <laughs> boom console can do it we contact um, HashiCorp and get them in contact with Tesla but like if every single car was autonomous it wouldn't be a problem because you're in you know if your Tesla if there was a problem for example and this particular Tesla or this particular car because it's not just going to be Teslas in the future this particular car had a problem with its brakes and it couldn't stop it could send a message out to all the other cars in the area that would say I can't stop and it would start altering like mm. other cars' trajectory to the point where, or like even when there's pedestrians on the road, 
if there's a car that you know is speeding and isn't going to stop at a pedestrian crossing in time the pedestrian crossing knows not to put the green man up mm. so the people are obviously if someone just crossed the road then they could be killed but people that follow the green cross code um that would you know if it wants everything's talking to everything mm. then it doesn't become a problem well you say that but you clearly haven't watched enough films um where where you can cause chaos because everything talks to each other a prime example of that was someone who worked out how to manipulate uh, the live traffic streamings or the live traffic stream where you could say actually this particular bit of traffic is really really busy and it wasn't uh, i can't remember how they did it but they managed to fake um a really busy road and it caused everyone's maps to divert and you would find that everyone was changing and they could change the way that the traffic lights were working as well um yeah i mean you basically just got god mode on the roads at that point it's like in that stuff that that's available today though yeah no i know but no one's using it it's not being used to like yeah okay if if you're on if you're in your car and you're driving yourself and google maps tells you that there's a bit of traffic over there as a human you could think actually at this time of day of course there isn't i'm gonna carry on going that route is what i do i have a constant battle with my sat nav because i know none of that ten is wrong but once it's autonomous yeah you're right yeah you you're buggered because you can't you can't if you can't well you have to override it but it's like the italian job too do you remember that yeah where he's hacking the uh the la street system and causing gridlock and changing traffic lights yeah i think well aren't a lot of those all closed systems anyway uh yeah traffic lights are traffic lights are but oh, traffic data isn't yeah traffic data isn't i think you could yeah. do a little man in the middle attack <laughs> There is a lot of things to be said around things like... Tra- I mean, a, a really good example of it is... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for watching those police videos, like Police Interceptors and um, 909 and, and all the rest of it. And I find myself looking at situations that go on and wondering how technology could solve a lot of these problems. So as an example, they're chasing someone in the car, they're doing 100 miles an hour or 150 miles an hour and someone gets killed at the end. And you think... Why Why are we not in a world where the police can just go, okay, this car in particular is doing 100 miles an hour. Let's go back to control and say, limit the speed of this vehicle to 10 miles an hour. And then you're having a 10 mile an hour chase. Then you could lock the doors. Then you could kill the engine. Then you could go in. Then you could open the door and then get them out, you know. Or you could, or you could make the car drive to the police station, right? Whatever you want it to do. These are all things that are absolutely possible to do today. Why on earth are we not doing them? Why is that not? available in every new car that comes out the door today and we so slowly deprecate all of these other other cars that are just getting old and, and don't have it and we end up in the position where your percentage of new vehicles and those features and available it's a bit like airbags and um and uh seat belts seat belts i was doing the action you know what i meant <laughs> that's what i can see um yeah if you it's a bit like having airbags and seat belts there was a point where cars didn't have those or ABS, you know, all, all of those new features that came out as um, the, the evolution of cars got better. Um, and we're starting to relive that again with technology in cars. And as the technology gets better, we're going to be at a point where those things will become available. But it feels like this is stuff that we could do now today with very little little effort. I'm sure you could speak to people like Tesla um, or, you know, anyone with a, a or even BMW, right? They have connected drive services. And you could be in the position where you could contact those people, get authorization because you're an authority like the police. And you could have it so that it's signed off by whoever. You could put those procedures in place so you can't just do it to anyone. They can't be hacked into or, you know, the mitigation of it is there. But it could be a really valuable tool that, that those services could use, which would 
quite literally saved people's lives. Like the equivalent of a search warrant, but a yeah, a takeover this warrant. car, takeover this car's warrant. Well, um, Google started doing that for charities. Um, so I think what's it called? I can't remember what's called. But there's a place where you can um, register as a charity on a digital perspective and google yeah. uses that as a verification to say you can use our charitable um tools for free so long as you verify that you are a charity through this third party yeah like it, it, again it exists today but we're not doing it we're putting very little effort into the things that actually matter like public services into those things i mean the the biggest thing i think that's changed recently is banks right we've been living in in a really old world with banks for ages until companies like monzo and starling and revolut and and the rest of them came out and said look we've rebuilt banking from the ground up and it's a thousand times better why aren't we doing that with things that really matter i mean i know money's one of them but public services and people dying and saving lives and fires and everything else isn't is something else i mean have you, have you seen videos of um firefighting drones for example no where are they getting their water from they're external but the point is is that they can come out of, of a building and right. fight, let's say like a high-rise tower, you could yeah. have something at the very bottom with a hose connected to, you know, say foam or water. And yeah. this drone could go to wherever it needs to go and, and put out the fire. And you don't have to wait for anyone. You don't have to wait for emergency services to come through central London. You don't have to worry about anything like that. It's just there and it's automated. But that's the thing, isn't it? This and Back to the bit we were talking about earlier, the entrepreneur in you is saying, we should be doing this. This, this is doable. The technology is there. The ability to test and learn is also there. So if you if you were to start up a challenger bank, you could write a few cloud functions, build yourself an app, have a database of you know a ledger. Boom, you're done. Obviously, you've got like regular regulatory things to go and do. You can't just start taking people's money and holding it. But the the investment, the groundwork, the time to go and do it is a lot less. Because of the way that the cloud is now, it's basically just a great big giant computer in the sky, and you can make it do it whatever you want it to do. Like we were saying the other last episode, when we were younger, oh my god, this is amazing! You can make this computer do something mm. just by writing some lines of code. Well, now I can just write some lines of code, and it just happens. Yeah, it's not much of a like. Of can a, you of imagine? A wow like, anymore. Maybe that. Maybe we should have like a a uh, a live stream. 24 hours of uh, Max Nolly create a challenger bank and see how long it takes. You've got 24 hours to basically have an app up and running with a as a challenger bank using like as fewer tools as possible and writing as little code as possible just to see how easy it is. That'd be interesting. And that app could like aggregate all like all the open all the open banking stuff, aggregate all your stuff from other banks. There's a really interesting thing I read about. Um, Business banking with the whole this whole challenger thing is actually not businesses don't care. You know, you run a business. Businesses don't care about where their money is. Businesses want to be able to manage their money easily. So if you combine invoicing with expenses with a bank balance as one tool, you people would sign up for that. You know, if I'm a freelancer, if I can if I can do all that stuff, if I can invoice, if I can track expenses, if I can track time, which is ultimately money at the end of the day. Oh, and all this tool just so happens to have a pot of money as well with a debit card so I can go and spend my money. Like that's what that's what business banking will be in the next five, ten years. So all the people like Sage, Xerox, all the big like accounting platforms, they will start being they will start being bank accounts. Yeah, they might be backed by Barclays or NatWest. 
to actually hold the money. But as a business, I've got one place to go and or like corporate cards. If I've got a thousand employees, all on expenses, give them a card that's branded with my own. Well, I don't think you'd end up with a card in five or ten years. I think everything oh, would be yeah. digital. Yeah, or like contactless at least. But yeah, you've got a form of taking payment and you've got a form of tracking who is spending that money. If you think about, you know, ten years ago, a business bank account, like one of the biggest features was can you do electronic transfers and can you deposit cash? Like that was the big thing. As a business, can I deposit large amounts of cash without raising suspicion? Yeah, can I write checks with many zeros on it? Yeah. And it go through. I remember my dad had a, um, back in the day when he was trading cars, he would have, have you ever seen a triple checkbook? Yes. Because he was writing so many checks that he would have like an A4 pad that was just three or four checks on a page. And they'd be like 200 pages. Yeah, I got given one from, I think, Barclays when I opened my first business account. And it had, it's got, like you say, an A4 thing of three checks on one page and you could sort of rip them out. And there were just so many of them. I think I used like one page in the end after after the after the closing the business at the end. I just had this massive thick bit of paper where <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm not paying that many. And paying in books as well was another one. It's got all this paperwork from it. But that's what it was like. You know, you go back to the big CEOs back in the day who got in a taxi and had like massive packets of paper of of their letters. They didn't have email. They had they had letters. They had to go through them one by one and read them like physical pieces of paper. If they were on holiday for a week or a couple of weeks, you know, they'd come back to all of this paperwork. Yeah, that's crazy. We take things like email for granted. Take a lot of stuff for granted, I think. But we take, you and I, and people that in the same camp as us, take even more for granted than the general public Mm. as well. (laughs) So you're you're thinking about, why aren't we doing this shit? Why aren't we doing that yet? Actually, people aren't ready for it. You're ready for it because you know how easy it is, but... You know what it was like when your parents got their first iPhone or when they got their first Facebook account or when they try and start using Instagram and you're like, they've got no idea, but we live and breathe this. That's what I find really interesting is sort of the black box analogy and migration paths to those things. So at the moment, we're doing the thing of doing nothing. So we're not making any progress into trying to change these things for the better. Instead, we're sitting on it. Um, I don't even know whether people are thinking about it or not. Um, especially the public services sector, I think that's very, that's so delayed. And it's such a big thing, you know, like I know we're starting, the, the biggest thing that's changed recently is that we're starting to get um, public services to have CCTV cameras on their bodies so that standing up in court and saying what actually happened, you can have a true account of what, what happened, which has been invaluable in, in a lot of cases. But that's, that doesn't save lives. <laughs> that proves thing. It doesn't really help. There's so much more that we could do, but how do you how do you get the public services to adopt new technology? Who is the one making those decisions? Is it purely government? And if it is, then with all the talks of people wanting to like privatise the NHS and privatise the police and that kind of thing, would that actually make things better or would it make it worse? It's where the innovation comes from, isn't it? It's where do you... That's the problem with civil servants is that there's no need to make the change because it's not their money they're spending. It's not their time that needs to be optimised. You know, they come to work, they go to work, they do a job. It's a bit like um, all these people that have like mundane, like data entry jobs, people that are automating the entry and coding it up and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. They've got their feet up type thing. Because there was, there's a quote by someone, I think it was Bill Gates, um, 
if I want to get something done, I'll find the laziest person to get it done because they'll do it in the quickest, easiest way. That's kind of the, the way the governments work, isn't it? Shame that. Yeah, but I think you're right about the privatisation stuff. That will... That if if the consumers start demanding stuff that isn't available, but that is doable quickly, cheaply, then that's where the innovation comes from, the private sector. So when, the, when customers, the general public, start demanding change and innovation, that's when... It either gets privatised or they make changes. But until people start complaining, or I suppose it's not complaining, it's knowing there's something better to be done. Are you saying I need to complain more? Uh, you personally know, en masse, people need to be complaining more. But this is the point. People don't know that there are other ways of doing it. Therefore, they wouldn't complain about the status quo. It's a bit like that famous quote from Henry Ford when he asked people um, with their horses, what do they want? And people said, I want a faster horse. He invented the car because, yeah, of course, they were, that was their problem. They wanted faster horses. They wanted to get somewhere quicker. They didn't know the car was was a thing. So their default was, I'll have a faster horse, please. <laughs> just apply that to today's language or this, like today's society. People just want faster horses. Does they that don't not, want a car. Does that not link in quite nicely to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is, I want a faster computer. Okay, here's the cloud. Yeah, exactly. I want a faster computer and I want to do less management of my computer. I want to just get my business thought idea process out there you want to take an idea from your brain to it being running on a computer if you're if you're running a tech business in the fastest possible way yeah that was a good chat though yeah there's a lot in there i think it's it's interesting to think so far ahead of what people aren't ready for and how you can how you can think they may or may not adapt to that chain and how as a as a race we could get into a better place with technology but as you say most people are not ready for that yet indeed great well thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time engineer to entrepreneur